Hello and welcome to the Orient Express, a podcast focusing on Middle Eastern history of the 20th and 21st century. My name is William Strejcik and I am a former graduate of politics and international relationships who found a long-lasting interest in the Middle East region and its history. I've decided to start this podcast in order to bring more light into the complex and dynamic region of the Middle East, since the understanding of the historical development is needed in order to fully grasp the nature of the present-day conflicts, wars and problems in this specific part of the world. The three Persian Gulf states, Kuwait, Bahrain and Dubai, were transformed from weakly united chiefdoms at the end of the First World War to centralized, institutionalized monarchies in the interwar period. Government and administrative institutions were established, boundary lines marked, and social cooperation determined. For centuries, the chiefdom had been the basic hierarchical organization on the Arabian Peninsula. Minor differences in religious composition aside, the organization of the three states was basically similar. Extended merchant family oligarchies allied with ruling families and nomadic tribes on the basis of fluctuating understandings over the division of power and control. Until the First World War, the ruling family's habitual violation of these understandings resulted in the forced migration of other groups, which sometimes led to the establishment of new chiefdoms. This episode looks on the arrangements and constraints that led segmentary societies built on tribal divisions and group origin on the Arabian Peninsula to accept a complex system of state rules, political hierarchy and obedience to a single ruling family. In today's episode, we are going to look upon the transformation process of Kuwait, Bahrain and Dubai in the beginning of the 20th century. So sit back and relax as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. To gain an understanding of the general transformation, we have to trace the social history of Kuwait, Bahrain and Dubai via the ruling families and merchant families. The three countries evolved from tribal groups to chiefdoms and then to more centralized states. Despite the transformation, they preserved their tribal origin as the basis of social status and political influence for many years after they ceased to be nomadic tribes. To understand why tribal origin still plays a key role in Kuwait, Bahrain and Dubai, it will be necessary to examine a number of approaches to social, political and economic relationships in the chiefdoms. These explanations shed light on the tribal system's survival in the Persian Gulf despite the changes that began in the latter half of the 19th century and continue until today. Tribal society in the Persian Gulf region was, and still is, based on family ties. The paucity of water sources forced many families to congregate at once. In order to limit contention over this rare and vital commodity, the families established tribal structures based on marriage ties, economic interests and political alliances. The heads of families, the sheikhs, devised arrangements for settling intra-tribal and inter-tribal disputes and in this way decision-making mechanisms were created and conflicts resolved. Commercial services and coastal cities were needed for the tribes to satisfy their subsistence requirements. The relative wealth on the coast attracted tribal groups from the hinterland in search of economic opportunity. Some groups settled around the coastal cities, others inside them, and still others founded their own cities. 
Tribal customs were preserved in the city, such as living quarters according to tribal background, loyalty to the tribe, alliances between elites based on tribal identity, and alienation of non-tribal members from the centers of decision-making. The coastal cities were dependent on the sea more than on the desert. Another feature of the tribes in the coastal cities, unlike in other parts of the Middle East, was the shortage of a large population of land laborers situated between the desert tribes and city dwellers. Kuwait, Bahrain and Dubai were founded by refugees or immigrants who abandoned their homelands because of economic and political strife with their own tribes. The rationale for the founding of these states was defense and trade more than territorial expansion by conquest. Kuwait began as a coastal commercial center that developed into a state-like chiefdom. The Utub, the founders of Kuwait, were originally a coalition of families from the confederation of the Anza tribes in the center of the Arabian Peninsula. The Utub were forced to leave their lands in the first half of the 17th century because of either famine or internal conflict. The Utub first settled in Qatar, but 50 years later, in 1676, they were expelled following political struggles with Qatari leaders. Hussein Khalaf al-Sheikh Khazal, another Kuwaiti historian, made a comprehensive political study of Kuwait and found that the Utub moved to the island of Al-Muharraq, where they engaged in piracy, as well as sheep herding and transit trade. Their activity led to yet another expulsion, this time in 1716, by the Ottoman government in Iraq to the Kuwait region, where they established an urban settlement. Khazal noted that until the Utub arrived in Kuwait, they continued to live according to tribal tradition without any appreciable effort or intention to create an organized, hierarchical political society. The expulsions, wanderings and permanent settlement forced the Utub to alter their traditional tribal economy activity, which was based mainly on sheep and camel herding, to maritime and overland trade, pearling and fishing. This change attracted non-tribal populations from Persia, Basra, as well as small tribal groups from South Iraq to immigrate to Kuwait. They perceived themselves not only as belonging to the tribes they left, but as loyal members of the new tribe, the Bani Utub. The name itself was taken from the Arabic root UTB, moving from place to place. Kuwait's social elite began to identify itself as an original Bani Utub group. The background of Kuwait's founders was homogeneous, but the transformation from tribal segments to a state-like chiefdom resulted from the building of a new political social solidarity. In other words, the original Utub families, together with new groups, may have created a new tribal group. For Kuwait to become a stable state, it had to sacrifice organic solidarity based on the unity of one group with a common background, the Utu, for merchant solidarity, that is, solidarity built on the political-social intermingling of various tribal groups rather than exclusive affiliation with a single tribal framework. In tribal societies, where the preservation of the consensus was vital to the survival of inter-tribal alliance, a modus operandi was achieved mainly through the mailis, the so-called councils, the institution in which the heads of the leading families met in the ruler's house on a daily basis. Here, the senior members of the tribal society resolved internal disputes and decided on economic and political matters. In this way, the sheikh was informally accessible to all male members of the tribe or tribal alliance. The sheikh could be removed if he failed to fulfill his role to the satisfaction of his tribe. 
Ismail found that the sheikh's ability to rule depended on his skill in fostering the trust of the tribal elders whom he was obligated to consult with on every issue. Jacqueline Ismail quotes a Bedouin poem that reflects this idea. We are the friends of His Excellency the Sheikh, but will oppose him if we see his intentions as malicious. If you accept our advice, then well and good. If not, we will banish you to hell. The sheikhs in the Persian Gulf Emirates, excluding Saudi Arabia, have no religious legitimacy that elevates them above their subjects. They are not God's representatives on earth, and their entry into office takes place without any trappings of religious ceremony. Leinhardt also mentions certain customs such as rising in honor of the sheikh, serving him coffee first, unless guests are present, transferring religious taxes to him, and mentioning his name in the Friday sermon. The main reasons for the absence of outward signs of authority were political, to emphasize the egalitarian nature of tribal society. The Al-Sabah family was no exception to the rule. It made no claims to being related to the Prophet Muhammad in order to gain religious and political legitimacy. Crystal has shown that Al-Sabah rules was based more on competition than on conquest or claims to noble lineage. The Al-Sabah family realized that its rule depended on the preservation of the city's economic interests and on the maintenance of political alliances with desert tribes, like the Ayman. Therefore, the family heads would choose an heir most suited to the demanding role. The ruler's ability to secure the family's hegemony was the essential criterion for his choice. The initial division of power in Kuwait was rather equal. This was true for the first political-economic division of authority between the heads of the three most important Utub families in Kuwait in the early 18th century. Khazal states that the Al-Sabah family was represented, the Al-Khalifa family and the Al-Ghalab family. They agreed that the Al-Sabah family would be the political ruler, but that it would consult with the other families before making important decisions. The Al-Khalifa family was given responsibility for the city's finances and commercial interests, and the Al-Khalab family dealt with the maritime trade. Furthermore, it was decided that all profits would be divided equally among the three clans. If Khazal's description is accurate, then it reflects the adaptation of the tribal value system to the needs of the permanently settled urban merchants. The Utub family acquired its privileged status through its monopoly on the political system and means of production. The Al-Sabah family attained political primacy because of its strong ties with the desert tribes that it needed for defense and control of the trade routes. The alliance with the desert tribes enabled the family to create the independent power base that Kuwait's leading merchant families lacked. According to Al-Naqib, because the Al-Sabah family's authority was limited, it depended on the Utub family's agreement to accept its authority. If the political rule became undesirable by the other clans, they had several options. Emigrate, oust the ruling family, or even assassinate the leader. In other words, the interdependency between the Utub families preserved tribalism in Kuwait even after permanent settlement. A new social-political reality evolved in Kuwait that shifted away from the original egalitarian arrangement between the ruling family and founding families. The social stratisfaction of the 19th century created differences between the Al-Sabah family, other wealthy families, and the rest of the population. Kuwaiti society became a heterogeneous multifamily society. Access to the political system and dominant Utub families was limited. 
Furthermore, the familiarity between members of the tribe and the rest of society, which had been absolutely essential for the preservation of organizational solidarity, changed. New social norms were needed that would be based on real or imagined lineage. When Kuwait was founded in the 18th century, accessibility to the rule was the right of all males. In the 19th century, it became the privilege of the few, mainly the heads of the original Utuk families. The changes in economic and political dependency in the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries impacted the entire political system. Previously, ethnic homogeneity and lineage prevented a significant social hierarchy from taking root. Now, however, the ruling family gradually separated from the other large families and the new ruler grew increasingly distant from his extended family. The Utub family's ability to limit the Al-Sabah family's political power declined in the second half of the 19th century, and this was due to the British involvement in the Persian Gulf. The treaties that the Al-Sabah family signed left control of Kuwait's foreign affairs in British hands. The advantage of these treaties lay in Britain's guarantee for Kuwait's autonomous existence against the local tribes and the regional superpowers, Persia and the Ottoman Empire, and British protection of Kuwait's sea trade. For example, the Maritime Treaty of 1853 was designed to safeguard Persian Gulf shipping lanes from pirates and local conflicts. The treaty explicitly prohibited the rulers to respond with military force against an attack on their vessels, but permitted the British fleet to take appropriate steps in retaliation. The treaty also had ramifications on power relations within Kuwait. The Al-Sabah family signed the treaties and pledged to honor them in return for British protection. This had an effect on blocking the other Utub families from ousting the Al-Sabah. The treaties gave the Al-Sabah rulers greater political leverage than in the past. But the main obstacle to the development of an authoritative government was the financial dependency on the merchant taxes and contributions. This meant that the ruling family could not translate its alliance with the British into exclusive rule. Al-Sabah was the least wealthy of all the large Utub merchant families. Its source of income depended on the percentage of the profits that the merchants agreed to allocate to it. Another reason for preserving the merchant family's power was Kuwaiti tribal tradition. Whenever the merchant families wanted, they could leave Kuwait and move to or establish another emirate if the ruler of the state tried to seize more power than they were willing to give. The merchant family's strength lay in the patron-client relationship with the pearl traders, the largest labor force in Kuwait. The state remained it essentially a loose alliance of extended families with limited commercial defense interests. Gellner noted that the extended families in tribal society had considerable economic independence based on their economic activity, such as animal breeding for food and trade. Interclan wars over access to water and pasture lands were generally avoided through the mediation of the tribal head. In the case of Kuwait, the merchant family's dominance, especially in Perling, left them with great autonomy. The arrival in Kuwait of more tribal segments, emigrants from Persia and South Iraq, strengthened the alliance among the Utub founding families so they could retain control over the centers of power. 
The historical events in the founding of Bahrain as a tribal state under the rule of the Al Khalifa family shaped its political, economic character and structure. The Al Khalifa family and its allies joined the Bani Khalid tribal confederations after leaving Kuwait and settling in Zubara, the northwest region of the Qatar Peninsula, where they tried to establish a tribal state under the Al Khalifa leadership based on maritime trade, pearling, and transit commerce with the desert tribes. This created tension between the Al Khalifa family and Al Nasir family of the Sunni Al Madhur tribe. The latter ruled Bahrain as a Persian agent. Al Khalifa recruited allies from the Bani Khalid and Utub tribes in Kuwait against the Al Mahdur and its allies from Bushar in Persia. Each side chose its confederates on the basis of kinship and tribal origins, that is, on the basis of Asabiya. In 1782, Sheikh Ahmad Al Khalifa and his supporters conquered Bahrain and expelled the Al Nasir family. In the years following the conquest, the Al Khalifa had to turn to the Utub families in Kuwait and Zubara several times because of attempts by the rulers of Muscat, Najid, and others to seize control of Bahrain. For example, Kuwaiti forces helped the Al Khalifa family recapture Manama, the capital of Bahrain, from the Imam of Muscat in 1801. After the reconquest, Ahmad Al Khalifa rewarded his allies who chose to settle in Bahrain with agricultural lands that the Baharana, the original sheep population of Bahrain, had worked, and with access to the pearl beds of the coast. The conquest of Bahrain did not lead to state building in the form of a centralized government. The different tribal groups that settled in the country with the support of the Al Khalifa family preferred to retain their autonomy and give their loyalty to their own tribes on the Arabian Peninsula. Since the conquerors were a minority among the Shiite majority, the ruling family needed the support of allies who exploited this in order to preserve their autonomy. Another factor that delayed state building was the perpetual contention between the ruling family and Shiite community. The historian Mohammed Ghanim al-Rumayhi states that the Shiites regarded the Al Khalifa regime and Sunni tribes as illegitimate, oppressive, and rapacious. The Shiite opposition, though submissive in the main, forced the ruling family to depend on Sunni tribal groups. Another reason that state building was delayed was the long and bloody struggle between the conquering tribal coalition and Al Khalifa control of the state and its resources. Without organizational solidarity and founding religious efforts, continual chaos characterized Bahrain's establishment. One of the reasons for this was that the Al Khalifa family failed to reach an arrangement over the division of authority with the Utub families, unlike the Al Sabah family in Kuwait, which resulted in the constant need to prove to its allies that it served their interests better than their rivals. The first attempt to set the foundations of the ruling family's dominance came from its older ally, the Al Jalahma family, under the leadership of Rahman bin Jabir, who saw the alliance as a means of attaining autonomy in Zubara, in payment for his help in conquering Bahrain. But Al Khalifa insisted on retaining Zubara. When Rahman bin Jabir's hopes were dashed, he went to war against Bahrain, with an aim of seizing it from Al Khalifa. Only Rahman bin Jabir's death in 1826 removed the external threat to Al Khalifa's political hegemony. Besides the external threats, the ruling family was also divided because of a family struggle over the inheritance of Sheikh Ahmad Al Khalifa, the state's first ruler. Sheikh Ahmad had stayed in Zubara, leaving the practical task of ruling of Bahrain to his sons, Salman and Abdullah. 
The former chose his living quarters in Manama, and the latter on the island of Al-Muharraq. Each brother forged alliances with rival tribal segments in preparation for a showdown over their father's succession. Since they were equal in strength and Bahrain was under a perpetual external threat, the two siblings were forced to share their rule until Sheikh Salman's death in 1825. Abdullah seized the opportunity to unite Bahrain under his absolute rule. He sought to extend his authority over the rest of the Sunni tribes in Bahrain, but by doing so he disrupted the political-economic autonomy promised them by their late father. In reaction, some of the tribes left Bahrain and others united behind one of their own kin, Sheikh bin Salman al-Khalifa. In 1843, the latter recruited the support of the al-Sa'adun and al-Ali tribes from Qatar and ousted his uncle, Sheikh Abdullah. The attempt to subordinate the tribal groups and segments of the Al-Khalifa family to the political hegemony ended only in 1869 when the office of ruler of Bahrain was given, with British help, to Sheikh Issa bin Ali Al-Khalifa. The period of Sheikh Issa's rule marks the beginning of Bahrain's transition from a feeble chiefdom to a strong centralized entity capable of enforcing its authority on the Sunni tribes. Britain entered Bahrain's domestic politics in order to stabilize the country, whose natural harbors ranks among the best in the Persian Gulf. Bahrain's stability would contribute to the Pax Britannica in the region, a policy that the British officials in the Persian Gulf and India had been working on since the 18th century. In 1869, Muhammad al-Khalifa, Bahrain's rule since 1867, sought to unite Qatar and Bahrain under his rule. He therefore turned to Persia for military assistance. Britain opposed Persian involvement in Bahrain and removed Muhammad al-Khalifa from power, replacing him with his brother, Sheikh Ali. The latter, however, was assassinated by his deposed brother, an act that led to further British intervention. This time, the British exiled Sheikh Ahmad and his supporters to Bombay and reinstated Sheikh Issa. Bahrain's leadership became stabilized for the first time since the Al-Khalifa conquest in 1782. Britain would intervene in Bahrain's internal affairs whenever political instability jeopardized its interests. Unlike other tribal states on the Arabian Peninsula, Bahrain was not founded on the unificatory principle of as -Sabiyya. Whenever political stability was upset, the tribal groups that dwelt in Bahrain solely for economic interest left the state, sometimes returning after stability was restored. During this formative period, when Bahrain was wrecked by political crisis, the Al-Khalifa family did not establish mutually assented institutions, the lack of which often led to internal disputes and armed struggles. In this unstable climate, many merchant families abandoned Bahrain for Qatar or Kuwait rather than sign a pact with one of the sides. After Sheikh Issa ascended to power with British assistance in 1869, institutions that were acceptable to the tribal elites had to be established as a first step in creating political solidarity. One of these institutions was the Mailis Alurfi or Mailis Altair, the Merchants' Council a mechanism for conflict resolution by the ruling family and tribal heads. Another institution was the Maili Salifat al-Khaus, the Council of Pearl Merchants, for resolving labor disputes. These institutions enabled a Bahraini administration mechanism to develop. The ruling family, the most powerful in the state, began to ally tribal elites to it in exchange for partnership in the state's decision-making mechanism. 
The elites were naturally interested in maintaining political stability, an indispensable condition for successful economic activity. They also realized that the Al Khalifa family could preserve this stability only with British assistance. One of the pivotal factors in Bahrain was the conflictual relationship between Sunni tribal groups and the Shid Baharana. The latter made up approximately two-thirds of Bahrain's population in the 19th century and first half of the 20th century. Most of the Shiites belonged to the Twelver Shia branch of Islam, similar to the Iranians. In Baharana collective memory, whether true or imagined, the region had basked in social harmony and economic prosperity before the Sunni conquest. Society had been ruled by Islamic jurists, mujtahids, and the Lang belonged to those who tilted. The belief that such harmony existed is probably related more to the Shiites suffering under Sunni rule than to historical fact. As the religious factor strengthened, so did Sunni-Shiite hostility. The Sunnis regarded the Baharana as apostates, and the latter viewed the Sunnis as thieves devoid of religious legitimacy to the land. The source of the Sunni-Shiite conflict revolved around the religious question of who the legitimate rulers of the Islamic nation were. The Shiites believed that it was the fourth caliph, Ali ibn Abu Talib, and his descendants, while the Sunnis denied lineage as a stipulation for accession to power. The conflict intensified after the Al-Khalifa conquest in 1783. In the Shiite religious historical consciousness, the Sunnis were heretics and usurpers. Religious dispute led to the creation of two rival legal institutions. The Sunni legal system operated according to the Sunni Sharia law, Islamic law, and was supervised by the ruling family whose interests it served. The Baharana legal system operated according to the Usuli school that became dominant in the Twelver Shia in the late 18th century. One of the main Usuli principles is the primacy of the Mujtahids as the legitimate leaders of the religious community and their legal autonomy to the central government. The Baharana's ability to maintain an alternative leadership enabled them to rise up on occasion and demanded changes in the social structure. The conflict was also connected to the traditional hatred between the tribesmen and permanent settlers who worked the soil. The Sunni tribes of the Arabian Peninsula regarded themselves as more noble than the land laborers, the Baharana, who were tied to one place. Thus, Bahraini Sunnis saw themselves as the aristocracy because of their affiliation with tribes such as the Al-Anza, Al-Dawasir and others, even though the classic definition of nomadic tribes did not apply to them. After the conquest, the leaders of the Sunni tribes split Bahrain into areas of influence. In exchange, they pledged fealty to the head of the Al-Khalifa family. Another aim of this division was to safeguard Sunni political social hegemony. As a minority, the Sunnis feared a Shiite uprising. Despite the powerful internal tension, the Sunnis generally maintained a solid front against the Shiites, which came to expression in the establishment of rule-subject relations. Thus, the Sunnis perpetuated the Baharana's inferior status. The Al-Khalifa families need to take suppressive measures against the Shiite population, and at the same time, its need of Sunni allies delayed state-building in Bahrain. The Sunni tribal groups opposed centralized power in the hands of the Al-Khalifa family. They were fully aware of Al-Khalifa's dependency on them against the Shiite majority, and they exploited this dependency to the hilt in order to preserve their autonomy. This was expressed in their refusal to pay taxes and their threat to leave the country. The background of Bahrain's founding is reminiscent of Kuwait's. 
a number of Utub families seeking improved economic conditions settled in a promising region. However, Kuwait and Bahrain differed with regard to state building after the period of settlement or conquest. In Kuwait, most of the segments of society accepted al-Sabah rule. This enabled it to attain a position of strength vis-à-vis -vis the merchant families and tribal heads and gradually expand its hegemony. In Bahrain, the al-Khalifa family was in a different position. Regional powers such as Iran, Qatar and Oman claimed sovereignty over Bahrain and posed a threat to the al-Khalifa family throughout most of the first half of the 19th century. This external threat, in addition to the socio-religious divide, drove the al-Khalifa family to seek British backing. The latter intervened in Bahrain's internal affairs at a relatively early stage, such as bringing Sheikh Issa to power in 1869, but also included British pledges to protect the land from the regional powers. British involvement in Kuwait would have led to a clash with the Ottomans. In Bahrain, however, Ottoman influence was weaker. Furthermore, Bahrain's economic potential and strategic location in the Gulf transformed it into a major asset in British regional policy. Thus, British involvement was a catalyst for Bahrain's transition from a chiefdom to a more centralized state, even before Kuwait and Dubai. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, Thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. If you liked this episode, I will be more than glad if you leave a rating or if you share it amongst your friends or at social media. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called The Political Transformation of the Gulf Tribal States by Yanaim Shail. In this matter, I highly recommend this book to anybody who would like to get even deeper knowledge about this subject, since the book contains even more detailed information about the overall development of the Persian Gulf up to the present day. Also, if you found this episode interesting, you can visit my Instagram or Facebook account called The Orient Express Podcast, where I'm constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes. So if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button and share this episode amongst your friends. See you next week with another episode of The Orient Express Podcast.